Welcome to Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson, and I'm joined by MNN's Bill Werner, Tasha Radel, and Mike Grimm. We're going to delve into what's going on in the North Star State. If it matters in Minnesota, we've got it covered. This week, the fishing opener, a new First Avenue exhibit opens at the Minnesota History Center, and the Minnesota Timberwolves' new president of basketball operations, Gerson Rosas. But first, while hundreds of thousands of Minnesotans work on catching some fish this opener weekend, their top elected officials, Governor Tim Walls and Republican leaders of the state legislature, are trying to snag a deal on the state budget with time rapidly running out. Bill Warner's here to assess their prospects for a strike. Well, Scott, I know for certain you don't have to cast around very far to find major and fundamental differences between the governor and Republicans, which so far have not been addressed in state budget negotiations. Senate GOP Majority Leader Paul Gazelka says about Democrats and the governor. Our issue is we want them uh, to make movement on the large tax increases across many different areas. Uh, Over a a four-year period, it was $12 billion. We we feel like that is way, way high as far as tax increases on Minnesotans. And so that's what we're waiting for. Let's take a look at those major areas of contention on taxes. First, the gas tax increase that Governor Walls is pushing hard for. The alternative to this is not winning. If there's a political win, it is crumbling roads, bridges, and transportation system. Um, I've laid out a very comprehensive plan. Theirs is the status quo. Again, it's not me saying we're grossly and inadequately funded. It's civil engineers that know what's there. Senate Republican Leader Gazelka says about tax increases for transportation. We're zero, but again, we're, we're passionate because two years ago, for the first time in over a decade, we actually put new money into roads and bridges. We took half the sales tax on auto parts and put that into roads and bridges so that this year there's $530 million of new money. New money coming in, $8 billion total, but we finally put new money in two years ago. Again, over a decade, we finally did it. Governor Dayton signed it. And so when Governor Walsh wants to put that money back into the general fund and then raise a bunch of transportation taxes, we resist because we actually did something that nobody did in over a decade. Now on to the medical provider tax, which is set to expire at the end of this year. Governor Walls wants it continued arguing it's a key part of keeping health care available to low-income Minnesotans and others. I will not put Minnesota's health at risk when experts from 141 hospitals, 155 organizations supporting people from with disabilities to Catholic charities to physician organizations that tell me if you don't renew the provider tax, you will seriously jeopardize the health of Minnesotans and undermine our system for all who are taking part. Republican leader Gazelka responds the provider tax is just one more surcharge on Minnesotans who are already paying way too much for their health care. The sick tax or provider tax, uh, if you want to call it, whichever you want to call it, that was what we fought so hard for in 2011 to finish was that the provider tax would go away in 2019. And so for us to say that we're going to take that back now when that was one of our big victories, that is, is why we're so passionate about it is because that was our victory from 2011. How, Republicans and Democrats, House, Senate, Governor didn't plan for the fact that now we're at 2019 and it's going away. And that's why this is one of the big discussion points. The effects of having the tax increases that the governor and Democrats want or not having them as Republicans insist 
Those effects reverberate through nearly the entire state budget and determine not only how much money will be available for roads, bridges, and transit, but also for health and human services programs and for E-12 public school funding, the two largest single categories in the Minnesota state budget. Republicans contend lawmakers have to remember the people who are footing the bill, i.e. the taxpayers. We've never voted for a tax increase since 2011. Republicans haven't voted for a tax increase. We, we did agree to a few fees here and there, but that has always been uh, something that's very, very important to us is that, that we are fiscally responsible with the resources that Minnesota gives us. And so we don't look at just the general fund for money. We look at all funds, all places that we're asking Minnesotans to pay taxes or fees. We put that all into one big pot. That's important to us. And so if you look at the Senate budget, which I said is over $2 billion of spending increases, uh, we didn't raise taxes anywhere except a new fee for opioids. Governor Walls contends Minnesota taxpayers are willing to pay the extra money to have a better state. This is a state that invests in things that make a difference. When we know when we invest in early childhood education, like pre-K, we get a 12 to 1 return on that. For example, in the Senate budget where they eliminate that, we know that that is going to add costs both on the front end to children in education and potentially on the back end in social services and corrections that could be alleviated on the front end. So this idea, whether it's paying taxes to pay our soldiers or our firefighters or our police or to educate our children, there's a cost you pay in a society. The debate has always been, what type of state do you want to live in? And we have created a budget that reflects the values of Minnesota. As I said again, I'm not looking to craft a Mississippi budget. I hear the, uh, uh, the majority leader on this, but Minnesotans have always known you get what you pay for and the type of state that you're looking for. So here we are, with only about a week remaining to the legislature's adjournment deadline. How soon do Republicans and the governor have to cut a state budget deal to be able to finish on time? Senate Majority Leader Gazelka says, At the very latest, I, I think all of us should, should get done by next Wednesday and actually agreeing, so anything before that is fine. We are talking, uh, trying to work through understanding each other's uh, different points of view uh, in a respectful manner is very positive. I, I, think, I, I still think we're in a good place, uh, um, hopefully uh, by next Wednesday or earlier. Uh, I hope it's not Friday or later. I have to be honest that I think some of this is, is that this is a time where especially members of the Senate are starting to realize what they're going to have to do. And that, as I've said this whole session, no, 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 was not going to be a negotiating technique. And as soon as we start to see some movement, um, we'll get there. But I remain optimistic and uh, just think that it's time for them to, uh, to come meet us a little bit. And so, Scott, the question at the Capitol over the next week is, who will nibble, who will bite, and will either side bring back anything decent on the stringer? It's hard to say, Bill. I'm still reeling from all those fishing puns, but I would say you definitely had it covered from every angle. Minnesota Matters returns after this.
Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't sat in your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed, and they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs, and it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover keytar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff, create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. It's like Christmas for anglers. The opener of the 2019 fishing season, Tasha Radel has more. The fishing opener marks the day fishing can begin for walleye, northern pike, and trout in lakes. Minnesota is home to nearly 12,000 lakes, 4,500 of which are considered fishing lakes. Joining me now is the DNR's Brad Parsons. Brad, how many people are we expecting to take part in this weekend's opener? Well, uh, around the state, it, it's we usually estimate about 500,000 people go out. Of course, that's really dependent on the weather and uh, kind of the spring that's come up. You know, we had a little bit of a late spring, and, and that might hold things down a little bit. But uh, that that's kind of the number we shoot for. And, you know, when we think about uh, fishing uh, over the, you know, throughout the year, does it help our state's economy? Oh, absolutely. I mean, fishing is... Uh, really a $2.4 billion business. Um, and, uh, you know, if, if you figure out the true economic impact, it's, it's somewhere north of $4 billion. So it's huge. There's a lot of jobs depend on it. Obviously, many of our resorts, our bait business, uh, gosh, it's, it's, it is a huge part of our economy. And then, you know, too, also when we, when we talk about the, the opener, people have been kind of uh, pent up uh, over the winter, and now they're going to be able to get outside. How is uh, this year's opener looking, uh, I guess, when we look at the harvest? Any projections? Well, it, it's looking pretty good. We're, we were just a little bit behind uh, a normal year as far as ice out. Uh, the last couple of days of cool weather, the water's not going to heat up too quick, but um, you know, around the state, our walleye populations, our northern pike populations are in really good shape. And we would expect people to, to uh, be able to have a good opener. But, you know, sometimes fish don't cooperate. So if that happens, don't be afraid to go try for some crappies or sunfish. They've saved more than one opener for me, I can tell you that. Fishing is such a family-orientated event. And if you're wanting to introduce a kid to fishing, maybe not necessarily take them out walleye fishing or trophy fishing. Is that fair to say? Oh, that's, that's very fair to say. You know, the, the big thing when you're introducing young people to fishing is, is making it fun. You know, if that means bringing along some snacks or uh, going for bluegills and crappies or rock bass or something like that, that that are oftentimes more cooperative than some of our bigger species like bass and walleyes and northerns, that's, that's definitely the way to go. It's all about having them having fun and not, not getting bored. 
And when we talk about fishing opportunities, if someone doesn't have a lake cabin or a boat, uh, there's many other opportunities. Oh, there sure are. I mean, uh, shore fishing, you, you don't even need a boat to fish. I mean, we have many, many shore fishing locations. Um, in the Twin Cities, we have uh, a lot of fishing piers and our fishing in the neighborhood program uh, on many small lakes. But even on larger lakes, there are uh, fishing piers that we have and um, um, other access points for shore fishing. And it's shore fishing can actually be just as productive sometimes as fishing out of a boat. And, you know, before I let you go, Brad, I, I always like to talk safety. You know, this is the time of year where the lakes are, are open, but that water is uh, extremely cold. Any safety reminders for folks? Yes, I, the, the water is very cold, and, and it's, going to, it's going to shock you if you happen to hit it. So uh, always, always wear your life jacket. Uh, utilize, if you're on the boat, utilizing those kill switches for your motor, very important. Uh, be aware of your surroundings and be aware of the other folks in the boat and the other boats on the water. Let's talk a little bit about the governor's fishing opener. Uh, the, the governor's opener event this year is in Albert Lee. Uh, that's about as far south as you, can, as you can get in Minnesota, but we're looking forward to it. Thanks again to my guest, Brad Parsons, with the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources. Back to you, Scott. Thank you, Tasha. Minnesota Matters returns after this. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson. The Minnesota History Center has a brand new exhibit celebrating the state's iconic music venue, First Avenue. I recently chatted with exhibit developer B. Aaron Cole about what made the club and what makes the exhibit so special. So this exhibit covers all 50 years of First Avenue's history. The venue turns 50 next spring um, and this exhibit covers basically kind of the sounds, the stories, and the uh, and the sites that you that you'll see. Like if you're if you're familiar with First Avenue, you'll come in, you'll see stuff that you know about. But you also get kind of a behind the scenes tour of spaces that you don't see when you buy a ticket to First Avenue. Um, you'll get kind of a sense of the venue's broader history, from it being a bus depot to being kind of one of one of the longest lived venues in the United States, and you'll get a sense of the stories that make this place really special, or they come from fans, or performers, or staff. What do you think has made the First Avenue endure for so long? Well, I think there's a lot of, there's, there's a lot of things that have made it endure for so long, but I think one of it is that it's always kind of been a, been a survivor. It's always adapted to fit, um, to fit, like, I mean, if you think about the last 50 years, you think of all the changes in the music industry, where people buy music, where they learn about music. And First Avenue has proven to be markedly resilient. Um, you know, it's there's not really one sound that defines First Avenue. I mean, depending on when you go there, you could have gone there to see a punk show, a grunge show, a hip-hop show, any number of print shows. And then, like, basically today, like, like like any sound goes at First Avenue. So they really adapted to the to like what's going on in kind of the larger kind of cultural conversations. But also like they have this reputation, regardless of like who's playing there, of just treating performers really well and treating their staff really well. I mean one of the reasons that First Avenue is an icon is that performers really want to play there. You know, and it's not just, you know, they're like 
some of that is just the fans. I mean, like Twin Cities and Minnesota fans have a, have a reputation for being really, really great crowds to play for, but also just like treating people fairly, you know, providing like really good conditions for, you know, traveling musicians to perform in and then just having really, really great sound. So, so that's actually some of the reasons that this club has really been able to hang on. Aaron, in terms of the exhibit, what are some of the specific things that folks can expect to see when they when they come in there? How much of uh, First Avenue history is actually on display at the History Center? Well, we do cover, I mean, as I mentioned, we cover all 50 years of the venue's history. I mean, it's history of the venue, and then its actual origins as a bus depot. But when you come in, we kind of try to honor, like, everyone's experience at First Avenue, whether they're going there now for the first time, whether they went there in the 70s when it was Uncle Sam's, uh, this kind of corporate chain disco, or any other time in between. So when you come in, you're going to see a very media-rich exhibit. I mean, obviously, we have a lot of performance footage, um, stuff that a lot of people haven't seen for a long time. We did a lot of work, a lot of work finding footage. So you're going to come in, you're going to see a lot of performances. Um, you're going to see interviews by that we did of really important and key people in the venue's history. Um, and then you're going to, you're also going to see a lot of artifacts, many from our own collection. So like instruments and outfits and other things that kind of just kind of say, you know, first Avenue, but at the same time, you're also going to get a lot of kind of that context of understanding, like, why is this place important? What is its place in kind of twin cities, not just twin cities, music history, but twin cities history overall. And it sounds like, I mean, for, for maybe the casual music fan or somebody who hasn't been paying close attention, obviously a lot of folks know First Avenue from Prince and from Purple Rain, but there's clearly much more to the venue than than that, which obviously now that was in the uh, the early 80s. That was quite some time ago at this point. Yes, and again, like we go right up to the present day um, in the exhibit. So we actually have a section that's on current artists who are really kind of using the, the venue's two stages to launch their career now. Um, but again, we like, you know, Prince does play a really important role in this exhibit, but we also focus on a lot of other key performers. Well, I, I hate to do this in, in a way because I'm putting you on the spot, but is there a particular uh, display in the exhibit that is your personal favorite? And tell me why. Oh, my very favorite thing in the exhibit is that we have a touring van. Um, a touring van, it's a, this is a, actually, it's a famous van. It's a van called Mountain. Um, it belonged to the members of the Doomtree Hip Hop Collective. And I understand you had to take some uh, unique steps to actually get the van to fit inside the building. Yeah, um, I mean, we, we have, we've had a lot of vehicles and exhibits before, um, but this, this is actually the largest model of Ford Econoline van that there is. And um, so we had to cut it me- Cut it in, basically cut it in half, right behind the right behind the driver's and front passenger seat, so that it could fit into our freight elevator. Um, and we had to take out the engine and other other parts that could leak. And Aaron, I'm curious, have you had any feedback from uh, local musicians or other musicians that have had an opportunity to see the exhibit and and gotten feedback from them? Yeah, I mean, we had our opening was this weekend, and we had. We invited a lot of the performers that were highlighted in the exhibit, and quite a few of them were able to make it. And like so far, we've just had really, really positive feedback. 
you know, people are just kind of like, wow, you know, they were like, I was, people told us basically like they were kind of wary that we were doing a First Avenue exhibit because they didn't want it to seem really museum-y. But people have come in, they're just like, wow, this actually has kind of the feel and the kind of emotional, kind of the emotional heft behind First Avenue. So, um, so we've had a lot of people who helped out with the exhibit and are, you know, you know, like local, like famous local music icons come through and they're just like, wow, this is fantastic. That's Minnesota History Center exhibit developer B. Aaron Cole. The exhibit runs through May 2020. Minnesota Matters will return after this. You wanted to see me? Yes, please, have a seat. So here's the thing. When this company brought you on, we took a chance on you. You didn't have that four-year college degree we typically look for. Right. But we gave you a shot anyway. And since then, you've worked incredibly hard and given it your all. Thanks. You've been an important asset to the team. But I don't think you can be an intern here anymore. We want to hire you. You're, you're serious? Absolutely. Find your next great employee. Introduce yourself to the grads of life. Who are they? Talent worth knowing about. Young adults of unique determination and experience. An ideal fit for your company in an entry-level position, internship, or even mentorship. They might not have every qualification you typically look for, but they're exactly who your company needs. I won't let you down. I know. Don't miss out on a resource many innovative companies have already discovered. Go to gradsoflife.org to learn how to find, cultivate, and train this great pool of untapped talent. Brought to you by the Ad Council and gradsoflife.org. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. The Minnesota Timberwolves named Gerson Rosas as the team's new president of basketball operations earlier this week. Rosas comes to Minnesota after serving as the executive vice president of basketball operations with the Houston Rockets. MNN Sports Director Mike Grimm has more. Scott, Rosas spent 17 years in Houston, methodically working his way up the food chain there and earning the respect of everyone within the organization and around the league. He now walks away from that franchise to come to a Minnesota organization that has had trouble gaining traction. What was attractive about the Wolves to him? Well, first off, I'll tell you through the process, uh, what I learned is I did my due diligence and talked to different individuals and um, really got involved with it. Um, I, I look at some strong fundamental factors, one of them being strong ownership. Uh, I think that's what marks an organization. Any organization in any sports, you take the lead of your owner. And I have a, two individuals in Glenn and Becky who not only believe in doing things the right way but care about the community and are passionate about uh, what's being done. Uh, it's something that really resonated with me. Number two, there's strong leadership in the organization. You know, Ethan and his group have done an unbelievable job of resetting the organization and activating it for the market, and that's something that you can't have success. You know, the business and the basketball are married together. Uh, they complement each other and they benefit each other. Uh, but then I saw a, a, I saw a strong core talent uh, in terms of the roster. Uh, you know, you've got a high-level player in Carl who has the potential to be, uh, you know, a special player throughout his generation. Um, you see a roster that is a year away from being top four, top five in the West. Uh, of course, there was trades and there was changes this year, but they were in the playoffs a year ago. So usually when these jobs open up, they open up for bad reasons, you know, and typically a roster doesn't look like this roster. Um, typically there's not the people in house in the organization that you have. There's a lot of good people here. Um, there's a lot of individuals that can help. We just need to fix structure, fix processes 
and make sure that our purpose is right in order to activate the players, the teams, and the staff to do great work. And that excites me. And Wolves fans certainly hope with that roster there's some magic sauce with Rose Sauce and trying to get more from maximum contract player Andrew Wiggins. So I've, I've, I have an interesting perspective in that. You know, I, I scouted him at a very early age uh, as a high school player at, in the Hoop Summit in, in Portland a uh, long, long time ago, and I saw a special talent. A lot of physical tools, unbelievable upside and attributes, and unfortunately, to this point, he hasn't gotten there. Uh, but I will tell you, I'm, I'm a believer in working inside out. What do you have? What do you control? How do you make the most of that now? Uh, the one thing I will tell you is we're going to invest every resource possible in making Andrew successful here, uh, whether it's player development, player wellness, uh, motivation, relationship, whatever the case may be. It's, it's, it's hard to imagine finding a player on the market that has as much talent and physical tools at his age. And my job is to find the best players. We have a player with a lot of upside here. I've got to make sure we invest in him and do everything possible. And a lot of that's going to, it's going to come down to him. Um, and I've had good conversations with him already. Uh, I think he's a fan of the style of play. I think he's a fan of the approach we're going to have. Uh, you know, for us, it's very player-centric, very family-oriented, and I think those are things that resonate with him. Uh, but it's it's going to be one of my biggest responsibilities here. It's going to be, you know, our staff's biggest responsibility, anything and everything to help him be successful. Uh, and to be fair to him, it takes time. Like, guys, guys find themselves uh, at different periods of their careers. We hope his is coming, uh, but also... You look at his background and the number of coaches, the number of systems, the number of situations he's been in. You know, we want to bring in a more stable environment. Uh, we got to get him enjoying basketball and being passionate about the sport. Uh, he's a great kid who's, you know, who's got the opportunity to be a very, very special player. And anytime you have a guy like that, every investment that you can make in him is is valuable and it's important. Uh, and we're very committed to his success in becoming the best player. The 40-year-old Rosas has a handful of major questions to sift through over the next handful of weeks. Among them, who will be the team's permanent head coach? And could it be current interim boss Ryan Saunders? Certainly, with new leadership comes uncertainty. How will he handle all of that? You know, for me, I, I've been in this situation where there's been a leadership change, uh, and I've benefited greatly. You know, Carol Dawson uh, re, uh, retired, Daryl Morey comes in, and uh, Daryl was very fair in sitting down and talking to our organization. And that resulted in me having a bigger opportunity and being able to impact at a higher level. I'm treating this process the same. Uh, there's a group in place, not only Ryan, but Scott as well, and, and the group that's there. I'm going to be very fair to those individuals. I'm going to sit down and talk to them. And then we've got to ask some hard questions. You know, where's philosophy? Uh, where's the vision? Um, style of play? You know, all those things are going to be considered in order to move forward. Glenn has been great through this process and has given me the opportunity to make the final decision there. So I want to be very fair to Ryan. I want to sit down with him strategically, philosophically, have those conversations. Uh, I think look at the roster and where things are at. And, uh, you know, it, it's, it's a high-priority decision for us to make. Uh, you look at the landscape right now where um, there's coaches' openings being filled uh, to me, the coaching role as a whole is not a one-person hire. It's a staff, and we're going to put the best staff possible here uh, because we want to impact the organization. We want to impact our strategy. We want to impact our philosophy. So uh, that's an ongoing process uh, that we hope to 
make a decision sooner rather than later. Uh, but I want to be very thorough and I want to be very diligent. You know, I want to find a partner that has the same values, and that's what this process is going to be about. That's new Timberwolves president of basketball operations, Gerson Rosas. Scott, back to you. Thank you, Mike. Hopefully this upcoming season is the year that the Timberwolves can turn things around. That's going to do it for this week. Thank you for listening, and please tune in again next week for Minnesota Matters on this MNN station.